0: Hello and welcome to The Alcohol Alert, brought to you by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. On this month's podcast we spoke to Dr James Morris, a research fellow at London South Bank University. James's research interests are on alcohol problems, framing and stigma, particularly in the context of harmful drinkers as a largely non-help seeking population. We spoke about how the model of alcoholism has come to dominate public understanding of alcohol problems, why that prevents many from understanding their own drinking problems, and how there are many more versions of recovery than just abstinence-led. First, here's Dr. Morris explaining how our society perceives alcohol problems. The public is
1: quite a broad sphere and there's obviously varying different views amongst the public around you know what alcohol problems exist as based on their own individual experiences and um individual philosophies about different aspects of life and their own relationship with alcohol. Um, But in general, I would say that there is um, what's often been described as a kind of master narrative around alcohol problems. Um, You know, particularly the idea of alcohol problems as sort of alcohol dependence or alcohol addiction in those terms, the master narrative generally is based on a kind of idea of alcoholism in an commas as we'll obviously um, discuss and unpick that a bit more. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think the idea of kind of dependence uh, or addiction is very much framed or, or kind of set within a master narrative of alcoholism kind of as a disease um, within the mainstream view. I think it's fair to say that the, the kind of general perceptions and certainly the language of alcohol problems amongst the public are quite different from how sort of public health models or kind of general professional conceptualizations would categorize them i think particularly in terms of the sort of uh space between low risk drinking drinking within the guidelines and dependence it's the the kind of things that fall between that you know would typically be described as hazardous or increasing risk drinking and harmful drinking um it's those kind of uh groups which you know obviously if, represent a far bigger uh, part of the population than the kind of more severe end of of, uh, at least severe dependence. Um, You know, sometimes we see them described as like grey area drinkers. Um, But yeah, I think it's that that's the real gap in the sort of public understanding that people tend to have a pretty um, extreme or severe conceptualization of what alcohol problems are that is orientated around ideas of dependence rooted in an alcoholism model.
0: So going back a bit, how did this model of alcoholism come to dominate public understanding and beliefs around alcohol problems?
1: Sure. So it's very, it's pretty complicated. Um you know, certainly in a large part it evolves from Alcoholics Anonymous, which um was founded, you know, in the 30s in in, in America or the 1930s. Um and you know, that that's grown into what is now worldwide recognized and um pretty widely accessed uh certainly by people with more severe uh dependence, um, mutual aid or peer support movement. Um, but but it's not just uh Alcoholics Anonymous that, that kind of has um you know led to the, the sort of dominant discourse around alcoholism because the kind of medical model evolved alongside that and yeah for 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 much of the last century um you know medical models used alcoholism terminology and and attempted to categorize and understand different levels of dependence or alcohol problems in 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 the lens of an alcoholism model so it's really only in sort of since the the 1990s really when you know the alcohol dependence syndrome was introduced and the kind of um main scientific conceptualizations kind of uh moved away from uh alcoholism models into yes the the kind of things that we have today like uh dsm model of alcohol use disorder and um, the icd international classification of diseases including kind of hazardous and harmful drinking
0: categories it's interesting because it definitely does still absolutely dominate sort of public discourse I mean even if I'm speaking to friends about it and I refer to alcohol dependence or something similar to that often they'll I'll get this sort of confused glaze and have mm. to then say what you would call an alcoholic. Um, you mentioned alcohol dependency within a sort of disease model earlier I don't know maybe, maybe I'm getting this wrong but you were sort of implying that it isn't necessarily within a disease model.
1: Part of the problem with trying to unpick a disease model is in a sense that like even like what is a disease isn't kind of widely defined within a lot of scientific or medical contexts. But yeah, the sort of disease concept of alcoholism itself is also, you can, you know, look at it in lots of different ways and is applied in lots of different ways. So the AA kind of disease concept, you know, actually the the big book and the AA text talk more about um, alcoholism as an illness rather than a disease um but uh even then it's it's you know a large part of it is its consideration as a kind of spiritual malady so even though they talk about you know having a physical allergy to alcohol under the daa the disease model um it's still very much also considered like a spiritual malady and obviously there's a lot of uh kind of spiritual and personal development almost aspects to uh the 12 steps. But yeah, so so there's different types of alcoholism models that have evolved. And yeah, the AA model is or the the AA understanding of alcoholism as a disease has kind of been called the dispositional disease model, where, you know, in its very classic sense, you know, it's seen as either you have it or you don't, um, that it is kind of very rooted in your in your kind of biology. That's how it's understood. Um Obviously, there's kind of more contemporary models, disease models, where, you know, particularly kind of neuroscientists or some neuroscientists, uh, some actually argue against it, like Mark Lewis, but some will argue that um, addiction uh, and, you know, particularly substance addictions are, you know, could, can be or should be understood as diseases because of the extent of neuroadaptation in the brain and the way in which these kind of processes become, so, so embedded and automatized, so that you know cues and triggers just lead to this kind of uh, process that that is sort of wrapped up in in impaired control. As a, someone who who doesn't think addiction or alcohol problems are best conceptualized as a disease, um, I, that's not to deny that there aren't significant neuroadaptations and that impaired control isn't a, a really significant part of alcohol dependence or alcohol addiction um it's just that you know mark lewis will argue that everything involves brain change and just becomes just because something becomes really deeply embedded like and the synaptic genesis of very strong addictive pathways occur that doesn't mean it's it qualifies as a disease but yeah i think in the in the sort of terms of the general public they kind of consider it as you know essentially a, a kind of biophysical or biomedical problem that your kind of genetics and or your brain have this kind of disease state which means um you're you're fundamentally different from other drinkers um and yeah and that again derives from the AA text, where where it's quite clear that it states you know um alcoholics and in inverted commas are different from other people um and again yeah that's why I, you know i don't think a disease application is scientifically valid but also potentially harmful from a public health perspective because you know the evidence just doesn't show that there are clear lines that you know all of the the symptoms and problems of that we use to kind of identify alcohol use disorder or alcohol problems you know tend to exist on on spectrums they're distributed across the population um rather than you know you don't see two bell curves where one one group of people have the symptoms and other people don't
0: yeah, so you're sort of saying it reinforces this idea of this sort of binary approach, I guess, to towards looking at um, alcohol dependence. And how does the use of the model of alcoholism um, and that and the disease model as well prevent? You mentioned public health progress. How how do you think these models prevent public health progress? I think the main way it does that is
1: because, um, or, or is through this this kind of thing that's often described as othering. So it, it's not unique to alcohol groups, but it is seen in a lot of the QOL research and some other bits of, of work that we've been involved in, which is essentially the process of classifying alcohol problems as belonging to another. The alcoholism or alcoholic uh, stereotype is is drawn on heavily for that. And so we see lots of heavy drinking groups or people with you know, typically lower severity degrees of alcohol use disorder or alcohol problems, but still, you know, often, at least hazardous or harmful drinking um, levels of consumption will be, um, you know, when they're interviewed about their alcohol, they'll very much say, you know, well, I my drinking's fine, I'm in control of it, you know, they'll define a problem based on whether you're performing your duties, you know, whether you, you, you know, like you're still going to work, etc. And mm-hmm. then they'll, you know point to the alcoholic other in inverted commas to um distance themselves their own drinking and um protect their own kind of drinking identity and you know they'll they'll be very keen to emphasize the positives of their drinking you know it's useful as a de-stressor and part of my social life and um you know I'm not discrediting that those those perceived benefits are are kind of real in some way but but obviously by 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 kind of maybe not balancing those benefits against the risks or consequences that kind of prohibits them maybe from considering the benefits of cutting down so the the, the existence of this extreme stereotype uh you know facilitates othering so that you yeah, you very often see what we call low degrees of problem recognition amongst, yeah, as I've said, those kind of grey area drinkers, hazardous and harmful categories. We see othering processes in lots of, you know, for instance, people with um kind of common mental health disorders might say you know oh i'm not schizophrenic because that's the drawing on the more extreme stereotype but yeah i think this 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 kind of othering process is very much tied to why we see such a heavy stigma around alcohol problems because it is a it is categorized or created into this binary where the problem drinkers are you know heavily stereotyped as, you know, all the stereotypes we know are heavily tied to ideas of alcoholism, you know, dangerousness, blameworthiness, um, you know, kind of of bad character. These are kind of stereotypes that actually I think that we see that many other alcohol use disorder groups draw on and uh, and reify to kind of protect their own drinking identities and I don't mean they do that in a kind of conscious way I think it's it's just a kind of normal social identity process where people are very protective of their identity and form their in groups and you know in group norms you know we all like to socialize with people that that more or less share our same goals and values and then it can kind of become you know give a false sense of security this kind of normative misperception where you know we we think that that's normal based on our own circle our own in group and then we emphasize the differences between other out groups and and potentially stigmatize them
0: yeah points to circumstances i've been in with um back at uni sort of thing with drinking with people and And you just assume that that's the thing that everyone else is doing and it actually points something that adrian childs who i think you've spoken to on your podcast has discussed himself that he was drinking a huge amount and he just thought that that was a normal thing because everybody around him was drinking um the same amount and it's only when he started to see the stats on how how much other people actually do drink or don't drink that he realized how how harmful his own drinking was
1: Yes. And that's partly essentially or a large part of why we think sort of alcohol brief interventions can work so well, because they'll, you know, identify someone whose drinking is, you know, above above the guidelines. But, you know, it's aimed at the hazardous and harmful groups um, and it will just give them some kind of feedback that helps them reflect on the fact that actually just because their peer group might all drink the same as them, that that's not necessarily um you know, without risks or consequences, and there's potentially lots of benefits of of cutting down their alcohol use. Um, But, and yeah, you see that normative misperception in different groups and the othering in different groups. So you might see commonly older, heavy drink, uh, regular drinkers, uh, you know, othering a problem by saying, well, we're not binge drinking, we're not going out and getting in fights and so on. And then vice versa, You, you might see kind of young um, younger groups who might drink a lot in one go, and obviously more kind of risk of acute problems, accidents, and injuries, et cetera, will say, "Well, I, well we're not, we don't drink every day, so it's not a problem." So, yes, yeah, it's, it's yeah, the, the, the in-group norms are very powerful, and then there's always lots of rationalisations for why the problem is is you know belongs to another group.
0: In terms of sort of wider population-level control measures, in terms of reducing alcohol consumption um, and harm what do you think the alcoholism model um, does to sort of prevent those policies from being taken up seriously by governments?
1: In I think similar ways to what we discussed before that the the problems are you know artificially or or kind of um, assigned to a, a small population with severe alcohol problems uh, rather than recognizing it as a You know, alcohol problems is existing across a broad spectrum, where the prevention paradox tells us that you know the majority of harms associated with alcohol, from a population level, you know, in terms of if you add up all the hospital hospital admissions and um, the kind of social and economic costs, most of those uh, are a result of kind of not the people who are at the most extreme end or have the most severe alcohol problems because the numbers of those is so much smaller, but they're kind of generated by a much larger group of people with lower severity problems. And, you know, that's in many parts why advertising, availability and, and pricing are such important measures because they affect small changes across the large, uh, large po- parts of the population. So, yeah, there's certainly... Good evidence that some sections of the alcohol industry have deliberately favoured a you know kind of alcoholism type model or disease type model, because it implies that there's a a set a subpopulation who are who are the sort of so-called problem drinkers, and that it's as we said earlier biologically determined, because that therefore undermines the the necessity or value of population policies that that might kind of nudge or change behavior in the larger
0: groups. Yeah. I mean, it's very telling that we're speaking a couple of weeks after the Health Select Committee um spoke to a number of alcohol industry representatives about how to reduce alcohol harm, which um, IAS and lots of other public health advocates see as a sort of very glaring conflict of interest. And the the head of the Portman group, which um in theory control the some of the marketing around alcohol. Um, he spoke very bluntly about how there's a small minority of harmful drinkers that are consuming at harmful levels, and um, and that those are the people that need to be helped with targeted treatment. And that's, as you say, often this um the position that the alcohol industry takes. But again, like you said, this simply isn't true. The majority of people that are harmed from alcohol are not what people would define as um, alcohol dependent or quote unquote uh, alcoholics. In terms of the language around this, words go in and out of fashion across all industries, right? And there are many words in our field that people have used 20, 30 years ago that they don't use now. One obvious example is what you mentioned earlier is binge drinking, that people now tend to say heavy episodic drinking. And one of the reasons why terms change like this is to try to avoid stigmatizing and othering various groups and individuals. Um, I think the, the term stigma can be sort of overused and people sort of forget that the real meaning of it and forget that it leads to genuine harm so what would you say is the importance of language around um, stigmatizing certain groups and and its contribution to uh, to harm
1: yeah so that the, i think the, the debates around language are really interesting and really important and you know the 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 adage that language matters is absolutely true it it shapes our thinking and you know we've got lots of evidence that you know simply changing a single word can change someone's whole evaluation and reaction to a certain issue, including in um, addiction and alcohol use issues. So there's the studies that show if you dis have a script describing someone with alcohol problems and you use the term alcoholic versus the term alcohol use disorder and keep everything else constant, that people will react with far more negative and stigmatizing judgments to the text or to the person described in the text where the term alcoholic is used uh, and yeah study by ashford and colleagues showed that you know the the reactions to that are both subconscious implicit as well as conscious so it really does shape our, our thinking and our sense making processes in, in in many different ways and of course you know a lot of people of course it's important really to acknowledge that you know that's not to say that people shouldn't self-identify as they wish and or to you know it's not to suggest that AA doesn't work for many people via that self-identification model but obviously as uh, for reasons that we discussed it works for people with more severe dependence who who find find that that route and there's lots of people who uh, Will never go to AA and or engage with it and find that it doesn't doesn't really work for them. So f- for those broader populations, we need. Other other kind of terms and concepts that can help them understand the kind of nuances and, and intricacies of the different ways that alcohol use and problems can exist in, in many different forms and are not just a, a consequence of, of your kind of biology, but also your environment and your social groups and, um, and all those kind of things. But yeah, language isn't static and some people have... Um, Argued against uh kind of calls for person first language, you know, person with an alcohol use disorder, um, over terms that we know are associated with uh stigma, um, alcoholism in particular, but also possibly things like abuse or misuse, even which imply a degree of kind of judgment about that person. But yeah, as you say, stigma is often over misused It's not just about an attitude or a belief, it's actually about how people are treated and how you know structural issues occur like access to treatment or how people are treated differently within the healthcare service etc but but the language we use has knock on consequences for those things both yeah in terms of um how how people understand the issue and how they assign you know what what they believe are the causes or or kind of responses to, to those problems we know that this the, the stigma literature shows that it's very pernicious it's very harmful it it prevents problem recognition in the groups you know the broader groups it prevents help seeking it damages self-esteem it damages um you know recovery optimism um stigma is is really damaging and yeah we can't we can't be complacent yeah. about that
0: yeah, I think it's incredibly important. I probably would say that as a communications manager, but I think one of my real bugbears, and you mentioned it earlier, is the term misuse, and that's still used quite widely in mm. in academia. And my issue is that it, as you sort of pointed to, creates this binary, binary position that either you are using this drug properly or you're not using, you're misusing. And I've always found that a bit odd with alcohol because kind of the point of it is to drink it, right? Unless you're using it to bathe with or clean your mm. hair, you're using it properly.
1: And it implies judgment as well. And, you know, the the thing about addiction issues is that, again, sort of in contrast to a a biomedical model, you know, I kind of like the idea of problems of living, same within kind of mental health context that, you know, when we go to treatment services and hear the experiences of people with, with severe addiction problems, you know, they've often had very traumatic very difficult lives and you know might have coexisting mental health problems and all kinds of pro- uh, problems the idea that uh, you know like they're, they're then choosing to misuse a drug is is very sort of blaming and shaming whereas you know actually self medication hypothesis and kind of Gabel Mate is getting kind of a lot more recognition because I think people do recognize that people, you know, use drugs and alcohol is a legal drug for very good reason. And you can't draw a line between the people that kind of use it in inverted commas responsibly as, you know, alcohol industry might like to frame it and people that maybe experience many degrees of problems with it. So, yeah, I really agree. It's it's a a problematic term that probably doesn't get enough uh, attention uh, in terms of yeah, its implications.
0: You mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous uh, a few times, and and kind of discussed this the importance of of it as a as a concept in terms of self identifying for some people. Um, if we were to move towards a model of understanding alcohol problems on a continuum, as you've discussed, would this self identification be able to continue? And if it could continue, would do you think it would still be able to be as powerful as it as it is?
1: I think so. Yeah, I think that, of course, as as I've mentioned briefly before, um, you, you know, kind of calls to move away from an alcoholism model isn't to say AA should change what it does or that people within an AA model shouldn't self-identify. It's just that that is the dominant model. And, you know, there's an, uh, a sort of a, a vacuum of alternative models that reflect the reality uh, of alcohol problems as very nuanced and diverse and existing on a very broad spectrum of severity and lots of other different aspects of why alcohol problems are, are kind of yeah very very diverse issues so yes yeah, I, I always try and be quite careful to say you know this is this is more of a public health objective it's not about saying you know this no, is in no way an attack or criticism of how people recover from through AA or choose to self-identify within that. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm sure there's a good, a better metaphor for it, but, you know, in the same way, I suppose that we have different ideas of or different types of mental health problems um, you know there's different types of alcohol problems and it's, there's no one size fits all. So you know if someone wants to self-identify with one type of problem and that's helpful for them in their recovery, then then that's absolutely fine. But we have to be aware of any one particular model dominating when actually the true nature of it is that there are very, very many different uh ways in which alcohol problems exist and uh, many, many different routes to recovery. And of course, the, m- the most important one that for many reasons why an AA model won't work for many people, particularly the the, the wider groups that has as harmful drinkers is because, you know, an AA model is abstinence, lifelong abstinence. And we know that drinking reduction goals, moderation are very valid routes to recovery.
0: What is the evidence based around that um, in terms of how many people do have a problem with alcohol and are able to scale that back to moderate levels that are therefore far less harmful, but short of abstinence? So yeah, again,
1: it depends on which kind of groups you look at, but, you know, starting with the treatment populations where you'd expect or the kind of assumption would be that that's where abstinence is most necessary. And yeah, indeed, abstinence does work and is the most appropriate option for many people with more severe alcohol dependence and who enter treatment. But um, a couple of years ago, a systematic review and meta-analysis of um, controlled drinking outcomes or non-abstinent recovery, we might call it, in um, clinical populations came out. That showed that there was no inferiority. So the outcomes for people who were suitable or choosing controlled drinking goals were as good as no less inferior, no more inferior than people choosing abstinent goals. But kind of tied to what we said at the beginning, you know, the kind of dominance and rise of the alcoholism model in, in the last century, controlled drinking was under a lot of attack and even smeared in many ways where early controlled drinking research uh, was actually, um, yes, yeah, smeared and, and accused of, of kind of fake research and the, the, the kind of lead researchers in that were actually subsequently cleared of any wrongdoing. But yeah, today we've got um, Professor Katie Witkiewicz, who has done a ton of fantastic work showing, uh, you know, drinking reduction goals that that even if people don't reduce Uh, to low risk levels, that any any sort of reduction in drinking is associated with real improvements in health outcomes and quality of life. Drinking reductions, even if not to low risk levels, are associated with really important outcomes. And, yeah, we do also see many people that achieve um, non-abstinent recovery. So, um, yeah, the evidence base is there. It's just that there's still... in a in a a way probably directly tied to the dominant idea of alcoholism as a disease a a very strong cynicism towards that being possible um and yeah even when i sort of arguably experimented with drinking again i got a lot of very scared reactions from friends and family like you're going to deliberately relapse and uh you know or oh that's a slippery slope so you know they they didn't mean it in a in the way that it may have come across, it was just a genuine concern based on a kind of perception that 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 once you've had some kind of alcohol problem, you can never drink again. Um, so yeah, it's much more complex than that. But yeah, definitely, drinking reductions and non-abstinent recovery um, have a have a very robust evidence base now to show for some people that they are uh, feasible and, and genuine recovery routes.
0: That is all for this month. Thank you for listening and we hope you can join us in next month's podcast.